Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, GoodPods, whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro, which now includes YouTube Music. So Let's Talk Micro is now available in the YouTube channel and also in YouTube Music. As far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and I have an email address which is Let's Talk Micro at Outlook.com. So either via email or via social media, you can provide any feedback, any suggestions. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and if the app allows you to do so, please go ahead and leave a review. Thank you so much for the support. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, please go ahead and do so. Dr. Karen Carroll, one of the editors-in-chief of the Manual of Clinical Microbiology, which released its 13th edition last year, she joined the podcast to talk about this valuable resource. Some of you that work in the lab might be familiar with it. Maybe if you're a student and you're listening, you might not know what it is. But this is a very important resource that is part of the Clinical Microbiology Laboratory. So Dr. Carol, uh, she joined the podcast and she discussed the book. She talked about, you know, what's new in this edition, uh, where's the information obtained from. You know, she talks about the resource being online. So all in all, a great episode. And if you haven't checked it out, please go ahead and do so. And as always, I am inviting you to check out the resources from Dr. Timothy Guthier, a very passionate pharmacist. And these are www.com learnantibiotics.com and also the Learn Antibiotics book, which is available on Amazon. And this is if you're looking to learn more about antibiotics. These resources include cheat sheets, practice tests, games, and more, and they are being used by thousands of people worldwide and may be helpful for you or your colleagues. So I invite you to check them out. So as part of the podcast, I'm always trying to bring topics that I think that are very important to what we do as, as, as microbiologists and as laboratory professionals. And this one is no exception. As you definitely know, the field of microbiology continues to change and we keep having more instruments and we're seeing a lot of changes and we're learning more about organisms. Definitely things like uh, whole genome sequencing, there are trending topics. And it's definitely fascinating when a discovery is made. And that is what this episode is about, the discovery of a novel bacterium that was named Variovorax durovernensis. So this bacterium belongs to the genus Variovorax and a new species was discovered. So in this episode, three guests joined the podcast, two physicians that, are, that specialize in microbiology and infectious diseases and one clinical scientist in microbiology. And they joined the podcast to talk about this discovery. And they talk about the gram stain, they talk about biochemicals, they talk about the approach of how they ultimately identified Variovorax Durovernensi. So it was great to listen to them. You know, they talked about things like gene sequencing and it was fascinating listening to them. And if you're listening to this episode, I hope you enjoy it and maybe it inspires you. It is definitely possible to discover a new organism, especially in, in the times that we live today and that we are working in microbiology and we have gene sequencing and we have Molotov and we are learning so much about organisms. So I enjoyed this episode. I had a great time listening to them talk about this organism. And something very interesting was that Dr. 
Laura Payne, which was one of the guests, she talks about why was the organism named Duranensis, and that was very interesting to hear. All in all, a great episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. So let's go ahead and listen to it. I have said before in the podcast, you know, the, definitely there. these are exciting times to be working in microbiology. You know, we get so much instrumentation. We're seeing all these names, you know, it's so much information, but it's so exciting. So we know we're learning more. And it's also exciting when we see new organisms, you know, been discovered. And today here I have some special guests to talk about a case study that was titled, you know, the first reported case of human infection with Variovorax durovernensis, a novel Variovorax species isolated from the prosthetic aortic graft of a shepherd. This was published on online on December 2nd of 2023 in the journal Clinical Infection in Practice from the British Infection Association. So with me today, I have Lara Payne, Adela Alcolea Medina, and Luke Snow. Everyone, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hi. My pleasure. So I mean, I just said your name. So just for the audience, can you do like a quick introduction about what kind of work you do and anything else that you want to add? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Lara Payne. I'm a um, infectious diseases and microbiology doctor working in London, England. And yeah, I got involved with this interesting case with my colleagues at Guys and St. Thomas's Hospital. Hello, uh, I'm Adela Alcolea Medina. I'm clinical scientist in microbiology. I work at, at Guys and St. Thomas's and with Synovis and also I'm doing the PhD at KCL and I'm expert in sequencing and next generation sequencing techniques. And I'm Luke Snell. I'm a uh, doctor and a clinical research fellow at King's College London and my interest is pathogen genomics. All right. So definitely, you know, welcome to the podcast again. Um, so, you know, um, when I ask about, can you do like an, an, an overview of this case and how do you get involved in it? Yeah, sure. So um, a, an introduction to our case. Initially, our case starts with uh, our patient who is a 55-year-old shepherd um, and they were admitted to our hospital uh, for an explantation of an, a prosthetic aortic graft. Um, so this is when the aorta has prosthetic material inside it um to, to keep the structure stable now our, our patient did initially had a, an infected aorta um that had been managed six months earlier they'd had a mycotic aneurysm that had grown campylobacter fetus which is a cause of mycotic aneurysms and they've been on long-term antibiotics for six months without patient antimicrobial therapy uh, so ertapenem and azithromycin and it was because of the COVID pandemic at the time that their um, their procedure for kind of definitive management was pushed back and pushed back. Uh, but it, they were having ongoing symptoms, so fever, weight loss, headache, all the sort of signs that make you think that there was still an uncontrolled infection going on. So when they came to our hospital, guys in St. Thomas's, they had a PET scan. So this showed... It was ongoing infection around that aortic graft and it would need explantation. So after having the PET scan showing the ongoing infection, the vascular surgery team explanted the whole of the, the prosthetic um, material and um, they did an autologous uh, graft repair. So using the vein 
from their um, from the leg to recreate the aorta. And we became involved really as kind of a clinical microbiology and infectious diseases service when it was found that there was quite interesting organisms that were growing on that explanted graft, the explanted prosthetic graft. So initially on day five, we found that there was gram-positive organisms um, branching Nicardia nova that was growing from the plates um, in both aerobic and anaerobic conditions. But interestingly, on day seven, um, there was another organism that was growing. So this was a, a yellow mucoid colonies of a gram-negative organism that was growing on the chocolate agar. When we did a moldy test on this, um, Variovorix paradoxus was identified in, in the seven top scores for this organism. But even still, the, the organism had a low score, so it was 1.7. And we normally say it's only diagnostic if it's 1.8 or higher for a, a positive moldy score. But it still made us wonder, what was this organism that was growing in all of our patients' significant um, sterile samples? And how would we best treat it and make sure that our patient had the best chance of fully recovering from this infection? So I, I went to speak to the patient to find out a bit more of a background about what they do, what their work was, and, and why they might have this, this new organism that hadn't um, that, that wasn't identified before. So it turns out that they were a shepherd and they worked on an area um, called the Kent Downs with a, a flock of 1,500 sheep that she they managed themselves. Um, and they were very hands-on in terms of giving um, oral anti-helminthic therapy, giving uh, vaccinations, and potentially at times even getting needle sticks with the sheep, uh, so needle stick exposures. So all of these could have been risk factors for, for getting an atypical organism um, as they had this, this agricultural work going on. And the fact that they also had a long-term uh, venous cannula, a pick line in for six months with that very broad spectrum antibiotics. I think our, our hypothesis is it's probably selected out this very resistant organism, this resistant gram-negative uh, variovorax, which is normally something that kind of grows in, um, in soil but doesn't normally grow in people. It was the combination of that prosthetic material and the antibiotics that, that gave that ecological niche. Um, so what is variovorex? So when we saw that obviously the top seven scores were variovorex paradoxes, we looked into a bit of what is variovorex. And um, it's given the, the name variovorex paradoxus because it's a, it's a bacteria that has the ability to devour a variety of substrates. And this feature is used in things like bioremediation. So for breaking down, um, um, breaking down pollutants and contaminated waste sites. Uh, and also has roles in biotransformation. Also, it's similar to Pseudomonas in that it has the ability to form biofilms. And we think that probably the fact that it has this, um, the fact that it grew every time with the Nocardia nova, probably there was a synergistic relationship that was growing, that was going on with these two organisms that allowed it to grow on this aortic graft material. So in terms of the, the management of our patient, we sent off the the organism initially to our, our reference laboratory um, and they did sensitivity testing and one of the the antibiotics that we, that we found it was susceptible was cotrimoxazole so that was our kind of primary therapy that we used for treating this patient 
It was also resistant to adpenem um, and quinolones. So, so those wouldn't be an option. And yeah, interestingly, she had been on the adpenem for, for the six months. So it, clearly it's se selected out that resistance. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, before, and I want to ask a little bit more about this organism, um, but I was, as I was reading, you know, the, the case study and I see that, you know, and as you said, that it was identified, you know, it was seen at seven days and I would just, you know, I'm thinking, I know that sometimes depending on which source and things, some, some cultures, you know, they do have extended incubation times. And for the sake of the audience, you know, if you're a student tuning in, you know, initial culture, let's say, you know, you get things like, you know, like blood, chocolate, and McConkie, most you hold them three days five days, two days, depending on on the source. So I'm guessing this is one of those uh, protocols that you had where it was an extended time to find it at seven days. Is that correct? Yes, it is. All our culture for tissues and this kind of, uh, um, this uh, specimen we received in the lab, in the lab we culture uh, for uh, 48 hours, and then we do a prolonged culture for an additional uh, five days because we culture in the normal acre place and then we do a enrichment growth for that kind of, of uh, tissues and yeah and and fluids yes okay yeah that makes sense and we, we kind of do same thing you know we have a which is what i saw in the case study which is a bhi brain heart infusion and we, you know, we use that also for our for our tissues here and then there are some like sometimes you know like like knee sources and things like that and joints that we hold them for extended periods of day Okay, so we talked about an organism that, you know, that's growing in media, that's growing in the lab. So, you know, that gets me excited. So it's like, I want to know what it is. You know, how does it look like? You know, you mentioned the grams and it was gram negative. So it was a gram negative uh, brought. Um, so I just want to know more about it. And you touch on how, where it was found already. So as far as things like, you know, like error tolerance, biochemicals, morphology and media, can you talk more about that, please? Yeah, so basically to identify this species or to, to know that it was a different species, what we do was an API to know the, the sugars and the fermentation of these ones. And also in this API, uh, you can get the enzyme activity. So it was a negative for everything apart from the urease, nitrate reduction and hydro hydrolysis of esculine. And then also to compare with other species which were already published, we did a, we grow we try to grow the the bacteria in different temperatures at four degrees and thirty seven degrees and forty degrees and it grew also uh, only for th in thirty seven degrees and then we try to grow also in different concentrations of sodium chl chlorine and it didn't grow in in, in any of the ones we try and um, then uh, also we try to grow in different agar media. So we try agar, uh, blood agar, chocolate agar, uh, maconke, nutrient agar, case uh, soya, and also maconke. And it grew in all of this media. media. And then just finally, just to, you know, to distinguish from other species, we have to do a fatty acid profile. And this is done by a chromatography. And uh, basically, the profile we got from this bacteria and this species, it was different from the other ones already published. So at that point, we, we thought that it was a different species, a, a new one. Okay, thank you for that. So, right, when you were trying initially to identify it, it was, uh, it was identified by Molotov, and, but 
it was ultimately identified by uh by was it by whole genome sequencing we're really lucky in the hospital that i work at in that um me as a clinician would also be working with um, Adela, who's a very senior clinical scientist with experience in genomics, and also Luke, who uh, is a clinician but has a really keen interest in research and genomics. And so when we see exciting things on the plates, then they can take it further and really dig deep into, into the science of it. And um, when Adela and Luke um, saw that there was really unique properties to this bacteria, then they took it further to to do the the whole genome sequencing. Yeah, so just as just to kind of like um, just elaborate on that, we're very lucky that we have nanopore sequencing on site here in the hospital. So it's a very small footprint machine which allows you to do rapid genomics essentially at quite low cost. And um, Adela's developed quite a lot of um, quite quick and easy and cheap methods with which to characterize. Um, lots of different organisms, viruses, bacteria, metagenomics. And so we used one of her whole genome sequencing method, methods for bacterial isolates. I don't know if you just want to explain what that method is and involves, Adela. Well, uh, this method basically is uh, what I developed uh, for isolate sequencing is a extraction, DNA extraction method. So basically we use a very quick method and it is uh, a mechanical lysis uh, disruption of the... Um, of the wall of the bacteria to release the, the DNA. And we do this by bead beating. And then we recover all the DNA by uh, magnetic beads doing washing with ethanol. So it takes us, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes to do this extraction. And after that, we use, like uh, Luke has said, uh, Oxford Nanopore technology, one of the library preparations they, they have to, to do the sequencing. And after that, Luke can explain better the analysis of that uh, um, we generate with this uh, sequencing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and how we could tell that it was a new species. Yeah, so we get the kind of, the good thing about this method is that we start getting like the genomic data within 24 hours. Whereas, so, you know, if you used to sequencing in the past, you'd send it away somewhere, and then several weeks later, you'd get some data back and then you'd have to do the analysis. Whereas now we can do it kind of almost in real time. So, when you're looking at the genomics, I mean, I think most people are used to maybe 16S RNA gene sequencing. So that's what we started with. So you take out the ribosomal RNA sequence and you compare it to a big library of other bacterial species and genuses to see what it's most close to. And so when we did the whole genome sequencing for this isolate and we pulled out the 16S sequence, we could see it was close to varivorax um, species, but it's quite difficult actually to distinguish the different varivorax species using 16S because some of them are very similar. And so what we found with our isolate is there were only six nucleotide changes between our isolate and some other species of varivorax. So they're very highly similar. And actually the 16S in this case, in the case of varivorax species, is quite poorly discriminatory between the different species. So you have to delve a bit further into the whole genome data to work it out. And actually, um, we, we, we were thinking to ourselves, so how do we prove this is a different species? How do we work it out? And quite um, handily, there is a committee which has um, published kind of the flowchart of how you um, how you decide whether two species are separate from each other. And so first you do the 16S, and if it's like 98.7% similar, then it's 
pretty similar and you have to keep doing more analysis. And the next thing you do is you do DNA, DNA hybridization. And so what that is, is you get your whole genome. And this is kind of based on very old molecular bi biology where you'd kind of um, put your two genomes of different bacteria together and see at what temperature they melted. And obviously, if you have very, very similar genome, you need a lot of energy and a high temperature to melt them. And they're hybridized very strongly. But if they're not related, then you need lower energies and lower temperatures to, to disassociate the genomes. And, and obviously, that's quite old-fashioned molecular biology. And now there's kind of in silico computer models that do it for you. So with your whole genome data that you've generated, you can kind of... Um, you can kind of simulate the DNA DNA hybridization. And when you do that with our bacterial isolate and you compare it and you do this kind of simulated hybridization with other with the other varivorex species, you see actually these genomes are very different. Um, the score for the hybridization of our varivorex compared to all the other varivoraxes was less than 30%. And you'd expect a lot higher similarity of genomes for related species. And that's kind of one of the main ways you tell this is a different species because genome is just so different that this hybridization um, is just, um, the hybridization shows it's very, very different from other organisms. Um, and once you've done that, you can also look at kind of the phylogeny. So you might be, most people are kind of aware of phylogenetic trees, which look at evolutionary history. And so you can pull out all the genes in your bacteria and compare it to the set of genes from all the other species and form a phylogenetic tree. And when you do that with, with our varivorax species, you see it's very different from all the other varivoraxes out there that have previously been published. So of all the other 12 varivoraxes which have been validly published in the literature, ours looked very different on this kind of hybridization assay and also this called genome phylogeny um, of evolutionary history. And that kind of sealed the deal along with the biochemistry that Adela's talked about. Not only is it different biochemically, it's also different genomically. And that's kind of how we proved it in the end to be a different species. Well, thank you for much, so much for that. You know, it's uh, as someone that you know, works in the lab and, and you know, we're just starting to experiment, you know, we're just bringing in uh, NGS and but knowing the whole process and what happens, you know, beyond the media, beyond the testing, you know, it's just, I think, you know, it's definitely a treat for me and I hope for the audience as well. So, you know, thank you for that fascinating explanation. Yeah, I hope it can inspire you that any sample in your lab, you never know where it could take you and you might be uncovering a new species as well from your patient samples. Yeah, definitely. Um so I was I wanted to ask I know you you touched on the on what the patient was treated with and I was I just wanted to ask ask a little bit uh, if you were able to provide the information but as far as you know with susceptibilities you know uh what method you know was used was it like you know you did uh grain strips this diffusion or broth microdilution and and if you can talk more about the overall uh resistance profile you know how was it and Yes, uh, we did the, well, uh, the, the isolate was sent to our reference lab and what it did was the, um, UCAS, well, we follow uh, here in Europe, the UCAS, uh, you know, um, recommendation for MICs and, and 
breakpoints, but for these organisms, obviously, we don't have a breakpoints. We don't have MICs because you know it's a, it's not it's, it's, it's not a normal organism to isolate in a clinical laboratory. So basically, what they did was a gradient strip for the MICs. So it was reported with MICs, but we didn't have uh, you know the interpretation of that uh, of that antibiogram. So basically, it was just a we didn't have if it was resistant or sensitive, just the MICs, and I think. Uh, the doctor, uh, they, they choose the, or the, the treatment based on the uh, PQPD, you know, and basically was that. I, maybe Lara can speak more about that. Yeah, so in the end, we treated with cotrimoxazole, which that it looked like both the varivorax and the nocardianova were susceptible to. Um, and we gave an induction course of... Um, two weeks intravenous therapy and then for a prolonged six-month treatment course with with oral cotrimoxazole therapy. Uh, this was quite a challenge because our patient's renal function was quite impaired um, and so many clinicians will know that cotrimoxazole can cause um, your potassium to go up so hyperkalemia so we had to manage also um, preventing her potassium to, to go up due to the renal impairment um, but she completed a full six month course of um, the oral cotrimoxazole therapy. And since then all of her um, surveillance scans and she's had further um, six monthly CT PET scans that have, and they've all shown no recurrence. So she's had a, a complete treatment and, and is doing really very well. I think that a lot of that, uh, the success was from the explantation. And I think, um, Explanting all the infected material is is definitely the key to get on top of these kind of complex surgical infections. Um, and yeah, just for for the audience, you know, as you're you're hearing, definitely that's something. And if you work in the lab, you can identify that. You know, we do sometimes you know test on the organism if it doesn't have any breakpoints. You know, we release the MIC along with some sort of comment, you know, stating that there are no breakpoints depending on the guidelines that you use. You know. You know, but like UCAS, CLSI, that's definitely breakpoints are are a hot topic here in the in the US right now that we we have to go to some new changes starting in this year. Um so just for the audience, if you want to learn a little bit more about breakpoints, check out a previous episode that I did in the catalog. As I you know, as I said already many times, but you know, this has been so so great, so fascinating. Is there anything else that you want to add? Oh, I guess just we wanted to to explain about the name. Um, so the name for the organism, so whenever you uh, have a new organism, one of the things that's required when you publish it is to, to provide a name and a reason why the name. And we found it difficult to, to decide on a name, but um, we went back to the patient and that's always the, the best thing in these sort of circumstances, ask the patient what they felt was going to be the best idea for the name because it was identified from the bacteria that was grown from their graft. Um, and they suggested uh, Derovinum. So Derovinum is the Latin name for Canterbury and they worked as a shepherd in Canterbury. So that's why we've called it Varivorex Derovinensis and Enensis um, is the, the journal's requirement for, for taxonomy from their particular journal. So it's become Varivorex Derovinensis just really to signify the, the ancient town in Canterbury where our patient works as a shepherd. Um, and yeah, we really hope that this inspires more people to, to do things like whole genome sequencing if you find an unusual bacteria 
because uh, you never know where it could take you. And also just to say, um, the bacteria is now lodged in two collections. It's in the National Collection in the UK and the National Collection in Spain. So if anyone wants to have a look at it, characterize it further, see what it can get up to, you can um, you can request it from those uh, collections. For instance, we know that some varivorex are used in China for dissolving um, plastics to kind of get rid of pollutants and um, and recycling. So maybe it will have some use in future. Thank you for that. So that's something that I'm I'm learning. I wasn't familiar with. So national collection in Spain and and in England too. Okay. Wow. Well, definitely. You know, a uh, great work. You know, I just definitely and and I hope that definitely like uh like you said um that you know this inspires people and I know that definitely you know things like you know whole genome sequencing a lot of places that are trying to bring it up and and trying to and and like I mentioned you know my institution we're we we're working on that and. So it's definitely great times you know, in, in microbiology and we learn so much and we're seeing all these you know, discoveries and, and learning so much. So um, once again, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to be in Let's Talk Micro. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. My pleasure. that my dear audience it's the end of this episode i hope you enjoy learning about varivorax durovernensis as always i enjoy sharing this information with you thank you so much for the support so please continue downloading episodes sharing the podcast with co-workers students friends i am so grateful and please continue bringing that passion to what you do it's so important you do such great work and stay tuned. Great things coming your way. So, as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.